0: Hello and welcome everyone to Oki Investigations. My name is Trevor Shelby. I'm an Oklahoman who loves to investigate crimes that's happened in my state and all across the United States. I have a bachelor's degree in criminal justice and a love for true crime. These stories that are featured on this show are true stories. The narrative of each episode comes from extensive research through police reports trial notes appeals personal accounts, news reports and much much more opinions in this show should be taken as such for more information on each story join us on our webpage, truecrime.blog where you will see some of the cool things we've gathered while researching this show this includes the timeline of events newspaper clippings court documents and much much more Check us out at truecrime.blog and our Facebook page, Okie Investigations. These stories depict violent crimes of all types and may be a trigger for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. In this episode, we will be returning to the great state of Oklahoma and over to a case that took place just miles from where I live but happened a little over 82 years ago. We will cover the disappearance of Eudora Cunningham, a beautiful Oklahoma City socialite whose family was well known in the community. But before we get started, please subscribe to the podcast if you have not done so already. This entire production is done entirely by myself, This includes the research, writing, recording, editing, graphics, social media, and promotion in a nutshell. So this one act can help us out quite a bit. Plus, when we have new episodes, you will be the first to know. Now, enough self-promotion. Let's start the story. March 7th, 1939. The Stokes Family Realty Company was owned by Mr. and Mrs. Stokes. Stokes Realty worked together with their son-in-law, Roger Cunningham, who was a FHA inspector. They would work up and get homes ready for sale, and Roger would go in and inspect the homes to make sure everything was good to go to receive a loan. On this particular day, Roger was helping his in-laws with a different business matter. On one of their most recent properties, one of the workers was injured while on the job. Roger was there at the time and he had to be called in to testify in front of the Industrial Commission to what had happened. Afterwards, he met with his in-laws to discuss the case. Mr. Stokes asked if Roger was on his way to take his wife, their daughter, Yodora, home now, and Roger's face fell instantly. He told the Stokes that Yodora had left home. Roger told her parents that they met after school on Monday, ate dinner, he dropped her off at the theater, and then went to work at his office. After the show, he met Yodora and drove her home. When they arrived home, she went upstairs and was packing her bags. She made up her mind it was too embarrassing to stay where her parents were always having to drive her back and forth to school and furnish her with meals, and she decided to go to California. He told them she packed three bags of clothing, and he took her to the Santa Fe station and let her out. He also took the bags out of the car and set them down, and that was the last he saw of her. He actually drove down to the Kincaid Hotel. He sat in their parking lot for a few minutes, and he had a change of heart. He wanted to ask Yodora to come back home. But when he drove back to the train station, Yodora was not there. He looked around on Grand Avenue and Reno Street. He looked under underpasses, but was unable to find her. And then he just went home. Realizing that the Stokes were worried that something may have happened to their daughter, Roger reassured them that he had checked with different taxi drivers, railroad, and businessmen to see if he could find her. But Roger further explained that Eudora had become obsessed with a radio program in California. He believed that she wanted to go and see that program in person, and then he hoped Yodora would contact them to let them know that everything was okay. Over the subsequent days and then week, Roger continued to do what he did best. He inspected homes, including one for the Stokes. While he was out doing his job, Roger would call home and ask whether or not Yodora had contacted anyone. Each time, they would tell him that she had not. Roger would then be downtrodden each time he learned that his wife had not contacted anyone. Miss Stokes did what any mother of a missing person would do. She worried more and more about her daughter as time went on. She decided that she would be more proactive in learning what happened to her daughter. She went to the bank where Eudora conducted business and asked whether or not Yodora had any transactions on her account since she left town. The teller told Ms. Stokes that the only activity was a $50 check that had cleared on March 6. That left $40 in the account. If she were traveling, Ms. Stokes believed that she would have emptied the account. Banks in California would have a hard time clearing checks from out of state. Miss Stokes then pulled out her family address book. One by one, she contacted everyone and anyone that might entertain Eudora for a short time. It was conceivable that if she were leaving town, or her husband altogether, her daughter might stay with a relative until things cool off at home. But when contacted, no one had seen nor heard from her. By this time, these Stokes were beyond worried. They started thinking the worse. Perhaps something happened to Yador at the train station. Maybe someone took her from there before Roger returned. If they waited too long, the perpetrator would get away with it no problem. So they went to Roger and asked if he had gone to the police about Yador's disappearance. He said that he had not because she did not disappear she was in California. They urged Roger to contact the police, but he refused. He did not want to bother them and waste their time with something that was a non-issue. Roger convinced the Stokes to wait a little longer to see if Eudora would contact them. The Stokes agreed not to alert the police just yet, but they also began to not trust their son-in-law. Wanting to see if the story was true. Mr. Stokes checked Roger's schedule and knew when he would be out of the house for work. Armed with an extra key, Miss Stokes entered the beautiful home of Roger and Eudora Cunningham. Their home, which still exists and is lived in to this day, was an award-winning beautiful home that was featured in several local papers when completed. She went to Yodora's closet and found several articles of clothing to be missing. This matched up with what her son in law told her. The other thing that he said was that she packed it all up. So she then went to the attic to see if the luggage was still there or not. When she climbed the ladder into the attic, the first thing she noticed was that it was very dusty. This was probably from a lot of the sawdust that was from the new construction in the months prior. She then noticed a fresh set of footprints in the attic. They were clearly men's shoes that made the prints, and they led to where the luggage was stored nearby. Eudora had excellent luggage for herself. They replaced her old luggage a while back because it was dated and very hard to move. The old luggage was gone. And the new luggage was still sitting there in the attic. Miss Stokes was sure that if Eudora was to leave her life behind, she would not have taken the luggage she disliked. This was the final straw for Miss Stokes. She decided that there were too many things that didn't add up. She then went to the county attorney's office about Eudora's disappearance. The next day, Mr. and Mrs. Stokes and Roger went into the county attorney's office to discuss what exactly was going on. Roger recounted what had happened word for word. He changed nothing in his story and suggested it was just silly to go looking for his wife because she would probably contact them soon to let them all know that she was okay. The attorney took the report and handed it over to police so they could investigate. They would look into the train station and see if any witnesses knew if Yodora had gotten onto the train to California or not. After this, Roger became a little more distant from his in-laws. He didn't want to bother the police with this matter, and they had done just that. He had told them repeatedly it was likely that Yodora would contact them soon, but everyone's patience was wearing thin at this point. On March 18, 1939, Ms. Stokes received the one thing that everyone had hoped for, a telegram from California. It read, Am getting along fine. Hope you are too. Tell Roger Love, Dora." For a moment, this telegram brought a tremendous amount of relief to Ms. Stokes but when she reread it, there was one glaring typo. Yodora's name was misspelled. On the telegram, it was Endora. It was spelled E-N-D-O-R-A and not E-U-D-O-R-A. This was not a typo a person would make when sending a telegram. Fearing they were being lied to, Mr. and Mrs. Stokes took the telegram to the police station The officers took the telegram and thought the misspelling of the name was curious. It also lacked any authentic detail that they might expect from someone who had been out of contact for the last few weeks. So detectives looked into the telegram. One of the things they knew right off the bat was where the telegram came from. It was a substation in Los Angeles. Officers in Oklahoma City contacted officers in California who picked up the investigation on their end. They sent detectives to the Western Union substation and asked about the telegram. Luckily, the Western Union kept pretty good records and knew that a local man, a Mr. Monty Dillingham, sent the telegram. The officers then checked local records and found where Mr. Dillingham lived, and they went to his home and interviewed him there. At first, Mr. Dillingham was reserved with the questioning. He didn't know what was going on and didn't want to get into trouble. But he told them everything when they told him this was about Eudora being missing and they needed to know about the telegram. The day before, Mr. Dillingham received a letter from his old friend, Roger Cunningham. It was an urgent letter that came with some instructions. He told them what it said. Spike, please send this straight, just as fast as you can get to the postal or Western Union substation, where you are not known. Destroy this letter and keep this to yourself. I will explain someday. Please, please do this for me, Roger and in the corner it read, I sure hope things are looking better for you, and that you have a chance to make it out there. You may have to find a spot for me. Do not tell Harry or Stormy. Raj. Mr. Dillingham told authorities that he believed that Roger was in some kind of trouble, but he didn't think it had to do with his wife. On March 20th, 1939, officers went to the home of Roger Cunningham and brought him into the police station for questioning. Detectives and the city attorney all confronted Roger with the evidence that they had gathered. No one that they could find around the train station remember seeing Eudora or Roger at any time. They then brought up the telegram. At first, Roger denied knowing anything more about it, but when they told him that they knew that it was Mr. Dillingham that had sent it, Roger lowered his head and admitted to having it shipped. Roger stated that he knew it looked terrible, but he wanted Yodora's parents to stop worrying about her, because he felt like she was okay. By this time, officers had become quite suspicious of Roger and his actions. While they interviewed him at the station, they also searched his home for any signs of Yodora. Although they did not find anything, they could confirm the details that Miss Stokes relayed to them. They looked at the footprints in the attic and did not see any that looked to belong to Eudora, who supposedly went up there to retrieve the luggage. Around this time, A.G. Odom, a building contractor, contacted police about something he saw around the time of Eudora's disappearance. Several times, he spotted Roger near a ditch in the 3600 block of Northwest 11th Street. They had just dug a sewage line in that area recently. One of the times he spotted Roger in the area, a woman was with him, but Mr. Odom was not sure who that woman was. With this new clue, detectives took Mr. Odom to the ditch in question, and then they began to take long poles and probe them into the earth to see if anything or anyone was buried beneath. After a few hours of this, they found nothing. The county attorney was convinced that this is where Eudora was hidden. He would have loved to have found her alive, but he believed that there was little chance of this happening. Frustrated, he confronted Roger with this new evidence and their suspicions. Roger's reaction was not entirely expected. He looked shocked. Roger was real quiet and then he started confessing to what he now said was the real story. Thinking quickly, the county attorney made Roger write down his confession. This is what he wrote. Monday night, March 6, 1939, about 7:30 p.m. I strangled my wife, Yadora, and buried her in a partially filled sewer ditch in the 3600 west between 11th Street and Park Place. May God have mercy on my soul. After this, I drove to the post office building. I stayed until 11 p.m., and then I went home and packed three travel bags with her clothes. I took them to the south end of May Avenue Bridge, and I threw them off on the west side of the squatter shacks, then I drove home. I made the above statement of my own free will. No threats have been made against me and no promises made to me. Roger then drew a map to exactly where they'll find Yodora's body. It was 8 feet down and it had probably been too deep to find by detectives. As detectives dug up Yodora's remains, the other detectives looked for the missing luggage. They found articles of Yodora's clothing in and around the nearby squatter camp, just as described. When they found Yodora's body, the murder weapon, a scarf, was still wrapped tightly around her neck. Roger was taken to jail. And as the news broke, it became a scandal of the year in Oklahoma. Local residents couldn't believe that something like this could happen in their own neighborhood. Roger's attorney quickly let reporters know about Roger's past and that some of the things that he had been through. You see, Roger had been in the state mental hospital a few times in the past. Roger contracted syphilis, and according to medical professionals, this could impact someone's mind. And yet, yeah, Roger's attorney was quickly setting up an insanity plea. Along with that, he allowed Roger to be interviewed while in jail. One reporter from the Daily Oklahoman asked if he had planned on murdering his wife, and Roger quickly answered, hell no. Roger promptly explained that they had gotten into an argument, and this had been happening more and more, and he just kind of snapped. Roger told the reporters that he had been trying to leave his wife for some time now, but each time he brought it up, she would threaten to kill herself. All of it had been building up for months, and he lost control. Roger was able to enter his plea to the court on April 3rd, 1939. Less than one month after he murdered his wife, he pled not guilty for reasons of insanity. The trial was set for October of the same year. Roger spent this time in jail, mostly in his cell. He would read any and every book he could get his hands onto. By all reports, he was an average inmate and got along with others well. The county attorney made it clear that they were going for the death penalty in this case, and that just days before the trial started, Roger started to get cold feet. He asked his attorney to see if there's any way for him to plead guilty in exchange for a life term, but this was rejected outright. In the county attorney's mind, Roger was going to lose this case no matter what. Cutting a deal now would just serve Roger and no one else. On October 23, 1939, the trial began. The county attorney, Lewis Morris, opened the trial by calling Ms. Stokes to the stand. She testified to how they were told about the disappearance of their daughter. Roger was acting as if nothing had happened, and then they began to suspect Roger more and more as time went on. At one point, while looking at a home that they were building, Roger had driven them right past the spot where he had buried their daughter, and they just didn't have a clue that she was there. Next, Mr. Odom testified to witnessing Roger around the ditch several times around the time of Yodora's disappearance. After that, they brought in medical professionals who testified that Roger was sane at the time of the murder. They tested him for syphilis, but he was negative on all accounts. They believed it to be true that syphilis can damage the mind over time, but this did not happen to Roger. The prosecution also introduced the telegram and confession as evidence. This removed any doubt from jurors that they had about the murder. At each step, the defense tried to paint Roger as this man who was unstable and capable of doing anything. He was not in control of himself at times, and that there was nothing Roger could have done to stop himself. They were not going to try to convince the jury that Roger was innocent but what they wanted was for Roger to have a chance to live out the rest of his life in jail and not receive the death penalty. The defense begged the jury for mercy. There was no reason for Roger to kill his wife. They loved one another, but something snapped in Roger and he was no longer in control. They then described what it was like to be put to death in the electric chair how a person would have to be shaved so that the electrode made contact with the skin. He described prison life on death row and that they would be condemning a man to an unreasonable fate. The jury was given the case and they quickly came back with a verdict of guilty. The punishment was death. Roger was immediately taken to death row. His attorney tried for a retrial and appealed the decision, but the higher court didn't see any reason to change the verdict. Roger had received a fair trial. On November 15, 1940, Roger Cunningham had been prepared for his execution. His hair had been shaved, and he ate his last meal of venison steak Scrambled eggs, toast, jelly, and coffee. At midnight, Roger was brought into the death chamber. They asked if he had any last words. He shook his head no. They strapped him down, and just a few minutes later, he was dead. The outcome of this case was debated for many years to come. Some medical professionals believe that Roger's past was enough to show he was mentally unstable and he should have served a life sentence. Over time, this case was all but forgotten in Oklahoma history. Join us next time as we look into the spooky side of things. That's right, October is right around the corner and we have some strange tales for you all coming. Make sure to subscribe so when we have new episodes, you will be the first to know. I'll see you all next time. See ya.